Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. the Telegraph podcasts. Hello. Hi, Des. It's Cara. Hello, Cara. It's good to talk to you because we have now got some progress. Des Collins asks me to call him. He's the lawyer from Watford with the watery eyes. He represents British survivors of the infected blood scandal, and he's got news. Proceedings are going to be issued against Law School. The Lord Mayor Trelaw College. It's the boarding school in Hampshire, where a lot of children with haemophilia went. So the pupil is um, suing the school? Yes. Sounds like quite a big development. It is a big development. It's one which has been sitting in the sidelines for some time. New evidence has come out in the inquiry since I started making this series of Bed of Lies. Evidence I featured in the second episode about the experimentation on pupils at Trelaw's school who were on Factor 8. And it's only now that the victims have reached a point in their own minds that enough is enough, it has to be done, and if it's not done now, then it'll be too late. They've been through their lives carrying this burden, but at the end of the day... They chose one to head the action up, and uh, that's Gary Webster. He's quite happy for his name to go forward. Gary Webster was at Trelaws with the other old boys I've been speaking to. I call him next. What's made you want to take this action now? I must admit, it's been a really difficult decision, but because of the inquiry and what we've learnt, we just can't understand why they didn't do more. I was there as a nine-year-old child. I know for a fact that I was on trials, on research. And were you infected with viruses in that time? Yeah, I got HIV, Hep C. You know, I just think the school, the headmaster and the people in power should have done more. They were acting as our parents. How have the other boys reacted to the legal claim? Like, what, what have they said when you've spoken to them, like Richard? Yeah, and um, and they've all said, well, we were waiting for someone to do it. I think we were all scared of doing it. 
How do you feel about uh, your old school now? Um, it's upsetting. Sorry, it's my voice is going. Um, it is upsetting. I think of the families that have lost their sons, and in some cases up to three or four boys, you know, from one family that have just gone with no explanation. What do you want to come from this legal action now? We want to find out why. You know, we want to make sure this never happens again. We want the families that have lost children to be recognised. This saga, if you like, has been going on far too long. And with that in mind, I have one more question for Des Collins. Do you have more legal action planned? Yes, this is an ongoing process. I'm Cara McGugan, and this is Bed of Lies, Episode 6, Retribution, Part 1. It's been a long road for survivors of infected blood, an exhausting trek to reach the doors of that central London office block, where the public inquiry is being held. Along the way, the British government's made countless mistakes. I've gone through a lot of them, but there are more. After the initial infections themselves, there's the handling of the crisis. For survivors, it's made having HIV and hepatitis so much worse. Take Claire's case. She's from the Midlands and she married Brian when she was young. They went to Iceland together. She was widowed when he died from AIDS and she was left to fight her own battle with HIV. If that wasn't bad enough, Claire was in debt to the McFarlane Trust. It begins in the late 1980s when the government set up a charitable trust to support people living with haemophilia who'd contracted HIV. I've mentioned this before. Survivors had to go to the McFarlane Trust to ask for support. Claire and Brian first went to them after he lost his job because of his HIV. In those early days, uh, we were having problems having heating in the house and Brian had started to become ill. Um, We needed some basics, just absolute basics. But it was troublesome. It was very, very difficult. There was no warmth whatsoever. There was no care. It was like something out of Dickens. It was very Victorian. We were made to feel that we were, had to justify everything. They struggled to pay their mortgage and the McFarlane Trust offered to help with an equity loan. There was no other option. We had no choice. That was it. And that was the beginning of 30 years of hell for me. The trust invested in Claire's home instead of giving her a one-off sum. That wasn't always the case. Some people were given grants. Claire's seen a document people at the trust wrote about her. It says... Basically, these two people are both positive and then we will recoup our investment soon. So when they gave it, they thought, well, the two of them will die. We'll get our money back. Because that didn't work out, because I lived... I lived, and so I just became a nuisance to them. After Brian died, Claire wanted to move house, but the McFarlane Trust owned a stake in it. Because they had equity in the home, if I wanted to move, they wanted me to pay the whole equity back, and I thought, well, I can't move then, can I? 
The only way to get out of it was to give them the interest. You know, you have to pay it back because it has to go back to the rest of the community. I thought, pay what back? Pay the profit you've made from my dying husband. They would have made about £40,000 worth of profit. And I wasn't going to let them have that. Not off the back of my husband. The battle dragged on for years. Every time Claire wanted to move, she had to go to the trust so they could agree. She tried complaining to her MP, who raised it in Parliament. This is just one big gravy train. There's so many people making a living out of the backs of people <laughs> who have suffered. Then finally, in 2019, something changed. It was the week the inquiry began. And I heard that they'd made that decision to write off the loans. With that, she was free to move as she pleased. Simon and Nigel had a similar battle. They're the identical twins from Northern Ireland who got hepatitis C from Factor 8. We have been on the back hoof because we have... Uh, been They've been fighting to get equality with survivors in England. In People who've been infected by blood products get annual payments. It's support, not compensation. And the amounts of money vary across the nations. The difference in some of the scheme supports might be over £10,000. Hepatitis stage 1 payments would have been about £4,500 a year as opposed to £14,000 a year at the best. For stage 2 sufferers, they went up to £18,000, um, uh, whereas they were £28,000. The amounts also vary between people who were directly infected by Factor 8 and those who are family members. And in some cases, in some areas, like in Northern Ireland, the widows only received one payment and no further recognition. So they had nursed, in some cases, their husbands or wives over a number of years. They had had to give up career opportunities, etc., etc. They had gone through hardship and obviously incomes have been damaged as a consequence. Uh, and then they lost their partners at the end of that. They were given one small sum of £15,000 in recognition of the loss of a partner, and then they had to get on with life. And the widows in Northern Ireland have received even less than those in England. Simon and Nigel have been instrumental in closing the gap. But all this has added to the sense of injustice felt by survivors in the UK. But this scandal hit countries across the world. It's thought half of all people with haemophilia were infected with HIV or hepatitis. Douglas Starr, the author of the book about blood, is telling me how other countries dealt with it. Who did it well? If I was to pick a country that I said handled it well, I think Canada. I mean, they bungled it terribly, but at least they had a national reckoning. Canada had a public inquiry back in the late 90s. The Creever Commission, 
where I testified, and it was a massive commission. They stopped importing blood altogether, and its Red Cross was found guilty of negligence and fined. In America... We did not deal with it well. There never had been some sort of national reckoning and fund. In Germany... I think Germany was mostly lawsuits. While in France... France had this huge show trial of doctors Goretta and Alain, and they were the two doctors in charge of the French. They were found guilty of fraud and sent to jail for a few years. The head of public health was given a suspended sentence. Years later, the former French prime minister and two of his ministers were charged with manslaughter. One of them was found guilty, but none went to jail. In Italy, there was a criminal trial in 2017 against the former head of pharmaceuticals in the Ministry of Health. He was acquitted amid allegations of corruption. As for the UK, we're a couple of decades behind. I guess Britain is coming to reckoning right now. With the infected blood inquiry at that central London office block. It's good that your country is doing this. You know, that's what a grown-up democracy does. They say we screwed up. Let's make it right, let's make it public, and let's help the people that were injured by this. But there's a piece missing. The pharma companies. Baxter, Bayer, Armour and Alpha. What happened to them? Well, I said in the last episode that they've paid bits of compensation to people who brought successful lawsuits. It's been haphazard, and the amounts vary. There's only one country where executives were held to account. Japan had a wholesale cover-up and many people went to prison and there was a public apology. Three executives in Japan pled guilty to professional negligence. They were from Green Cross, which owned Alpha, the company where whistleblower K. Noel worked. They delayed, they denied the existence of AIDS, they were probably the worst. I want to put all this into context and I found someone who can help me out. I'm Gerald Posner. I'm a a journalist and author of Pharma. Uh, It's a history of the American pharmaceutical industry published in 2020. It took Gerald five years to research. It's an 800-page tome. And of course, there's a chapter on the blood scandal. I tried to do it all, starting with the uh, the 19th century when drugs first started, as, and everything was legal in the U.S., including heroin, and which was a patented product by Bayer. What you find is there are certain things that are in the DNA of the drug industry, and that is that sometimes profits come ahead of patients. He's seen a lot of examples of companies behaving like they did with Factor Eight. Sometimes some of the stories are absolutely scandalous. Uh, The drug companies will put out a drug, find out that there's something wrong with it because they start to pick up an increasing number of complaints or reports from doctors about problems. Take the first contraceptive pill. Approved in 1960, as reports came into the drug company about an increasing number of uterine cancer and also uh, blood clots because it turned out that the estrogen levels were far too high in the original oral contraceptive, the drug company did nothing. And literally, you're talking about lives at stake. And in the context of all your research into scandals, um, how would you say the blood scandal fits in terms of kind of the scale and how many people are affected and um, what happened? I think the blood scandal in the UK is one of the worst of the health scandals and drug scandals I've come across. And in terms of the pharma companies, what have we seen recently that is kind of comparable? 
Oh, I, I think that it's very different, but it's very similar because it's profits out of uh, patients, and that is the opioid crisis. They pushed it as though it was candy, and in the end, you end up with enormous addiction rates, you end up with a high death rate, an overdose rate. The opioid crisis hasn't been as severe in the UK, in part because we now have stricter rules on the relationship between doctors and the industry. Pharmaceutical companies, for the most part, walked away by paying fines. It's still rolling out in the US. Nobody really goes to prison for it. And it's a shameful chapter in pharmaceutical industry history because it involves so many different players who are responsible. And this is why I say it's similar to the, to the blood scandal. But Gerald is clear on something. He doesn't think any of this is done out of malice. That's important. Sometimes there's corruption, but most of the time there's not. It's just that they they bungle along and do it. So we see the wrongdoing, but that doesn't make me think that they are sitting around a table and inventing a virus to go out and infect the world or that they're coming up with fake vaccines. You either have that conspiratorial mindset and see everything as being finely tuned or not. I see the problems, but it doesn't make me embrace the conspiracies, if that makes sense. But nevertheless, when companies get something wrong, they often get little more than a slap on the wrist. And when they eventually have to pay a fine for having done something terrible, it reduces the amount of their profit, but it never eliminates it. For them, it's the price of doing business. And so it happened that the companies involved in the infected blood scandal avoided long-term impact. They found clever ways to absolve themselves of responsibility. A lot of these companies now have changed names multiple times. Armor, for example, they're not called Armor anymore. Armor makes hot dogs, right? That's what people think. We had one of their lawyers say that. But they got bought out by somebody else. And they'll say, no, um, we changed our name in 1963. Cutter got bought out by Bayer. And then we were taken over by someone else in 1985. Alpha got bought out too. Yeah. They will say, it wasn't us. And you'll say, well, it, it was. It was Green Cross Corporation from Japan. We'll say, well, hang on, it sounds very similar name. Spun off and renamed, or they've been sold to other companies. They will say, completely different company, and if you want to examine 86 lever arch files of company transfers and backwards and forwards, you will find that what we're saying is right. The leadership get purged, they're out of the company, but then the company can come back. Bayer's a perfect example. What are all the things that pharma companies have done to try and keep their names out of this? Pharma companies are very quick to go on the attack if there's any suggestion that they are involved or possibly at fault or possibly incriminated. If you say that we've done anything wrong, we'll have you in court in the morning. And no one's got the time, the money or the inclination to go through that uh, exercise. And they're probably right. They've, They've covered their backs. Des Collins knows that better than anyone because he saw off an attack against one of his clients. I had organised a protest outside Revlon's head office in London. Jason's the campaigner whose father died when he was four. The reason why I picked Revlon was basically because I think that my father was probably infected with HIV through an armour product. 
which at the time was under Revlon Healthcare. So I've always had a particular bone to pick with Revlon. Revlon, the makeup brand, sold its healthcare division in the 80s, so they didn't want this protest to happen on their doorstep. In the run-up to this protest, I, I had not made any attempt to tell Revlon about it. In fact, that would be counterproductive. Why would I give them advance notice? But the day before, Jason received an alarming email. From Revlon's lead counsel in New York saying, we don't think you should do this protest. They threatened legal action if Jason went ahead, but he decided to do it anyway. And if they do, great, let's do it. Because I know that the the PR that would bring our campaign is the kind that we can't buy. You know, you're, you're going to sue the child of a man that Revlon Healthcare's company killed. So do it. You know, that's how I felt. The protesters took their banners down to London, to the headquarters of Revlon. It's a big Art Deco building with two statues of black cats poised in front. Can you describe what the protest was like? So a contaminated blood scandal protest is not an Extinction Rebellion protest. It's very calm. Um, But I think also we have impact. At this particular protest, we had made, I think, 2,000 red and yellow crosses. And we had a load of banners on with, you know, the faces of people that had died. Was your dad on one of them? Yeah, one of the, I think my dad's face was on one of the murdered banners. Jason spoke about all this in his evidence to the inquiry. Revlon submitted a seven-page response, denying that their company today has anything to do with Revlon Healthcare of the past. Jason did learn something that day at the protest. Suffice to say, all the pharma companies are watching. Around 1,500 people with haemophilia in the UK have died from their infections, and many thousand more around the world. So should the pharma companies have been hit with more than some fines here and there? We screamed, and and only a few people listened. We reported this to the FBI, to the U.S. attorney, to every place, every state that I went. Tom Mull, the lawyer from Hawaii, wanted more to happen after the guilty verdict in their trial against the pharma companies, when they proved that Factor VIII had fatally infected Ken Dixon with HIV back in 1999. We reported it, and not a thing came of it. So it was, that was very frustrating to us and very eye-opening, too. We did everything we could, and we were surprised that we weren't able to, to get that going. There were criminal investigations and trials in other countries, but not here. Do you think they have been held to account? No. Short answer. That's Michael Baum, the lawyer from California who worked with Tom Mull. When he discovered those files that showed Cutter, which was part of Bayer, had kept selling infected Factor VIII to the Far East, he launched a new legal case. He tried to sue the company in America on behalf of victims from Taiwan. But it didn't get off the ground. The judge said... That had to go to Taiwan. And that's what he did for all the cases, for all the countries around the world, that they wouldn't 
be allowed to try their cases here in the US. And that made it so much harder for Michael's firm to do anything with all the evidence they'd gathered. So you get stuck with UK law or Israeli law or Taiwan law, and we're all they're like 70,000 people worldwide who were HIV infected from their AHF. And these decisions, which were unjust decisions, let the companies off the hook. So globally, do you think that it seems like the pharma companies have sort of got away with it? Totally. There were some international cases against the pharma companies, but the settlements were limited. Is it too late? I don't think so. We've interviewed a lot of um, people with haemophilia who have HIV and AIDS from these products who are still alive today. Is there anything that they could do? It's kind of a lottery, or you could try. We did the basic investigation and acquired the basic documents that showed the fraud and showed what happened. All the documents they gathered, which I've been going through in this series, like the memos after the government told companies to stop collecting risky plasma, and the internal notes that described the infections as a marketing issue. Well, he says they could still be helpful. You could take this and go do a lawsuit. Why do you think no one has? It's expensive. And not all law firms are prepared to incur that expense. Now, we paved the road. I mean, we... The trailblazing has been done. But there's a team in the UK who might want to take action. The pharma companies must, to some extent, be in the frame here. Des Collins recently started legal proceedings against Trelaw's school on behalf of ex-pupil Gary Webster. And he isn't writing off further action. What we've decided is that Once the evidence produced by the inquiry becomes freely available, we will look at the pharma companies again. But why have they been given a free reign over this? Because they're ultimately all-powerful. I know that sounds like I'm sort of losing it. I'm not saying that because I've got a down on pharma companies. They've done some amazing work. You know, I had COVID at Christmas. I've had the jabs. I'm really glad I've had them. Do you think there should have been a corporate manslaughter case? The evidence which I have seen uh, would indicate that corporate manslaughter is something which should and could be considered at some point in the future. But whether enough evidence comes out of this inquiry to allow that to take place, I don't know. Forty years on, this is still a moving story. As I'm putting this episode together, someone important has taken the stand at the inquiry. Christopher Bishop. That name won't mean a lot, but his former position might. He was marketing manager in Britain for Armour, the company owned by Revlon Healthcare. He worked there for 20 years in the 70s to 90s, and he's the only representative from the four pharma companies who's ever stood before survivors in Britain. It's a big day. Christopher Bishop video calls into the inquiry's main room. Survivors have lined up to hear what he has to say. Jason and Claire are in the audience, along with some ex-pupils from Trelaws. 
Good morning, Mr. Bishop. Can you hear me? Yes, good morning, Sir Brian. I can hear you loud and clear. Christopher Bishop's written statement is filled with answers like, I don't recall that, and it's not appropriate to comment. So it didn't look like he'd have much to say. But on the day, it was different. Straight off the bat, almost, this morning, he accepts that it was known within armour that the products could transmit hepatitis. That's Jason, who's watching. Jenny Richards, the lead counsel for the inquiry, is asking the questions. I want to ask you a little about... First of all, hepatitis. As at 1976, when factor concentrates were first launched by Armour in the UK, what, to the best of your recollection, was your knowledge and understanding of of hepatitis B and of non-A, non-B hepatitis? Well, at the time of the launch, there was... uh... Um, everybody, the general public knew the risks from hepatitis B, um, from, uh, from blood um, and um, body fluids, etc. Um, at that time, non-A, non-B uh, wasn't in the domain. So would it be fair to say, Mr Bishop, that certainly by 1981, you and your colleagues would have been aware that non-A, non-B hepatitis could, it, could lead to severe and chronic liver damage? Yes. Was it not part of the sales representatives' responsibilities to, to talk to doctors about the risks from using the product? It would have come up, obviously, during discussions, um, but um, uh, the reassurance um, in the minds of, of, of everybody in, in the armour company, um, which was portrayed to the uh, to clinicians, that, uh, that our, um, the risks associated with uh, the collection of, of material for our products uh, was uh, beyond reproach. They sold a product they knew carried hepatitis and they knew hepatitis could lead to severe chronic liver damage, uh, but they told clinicians the product was safe and then still says that they shouldn't have done anything differently, anything at all. It's just so bizarre. It's not even like he tried to come up with a good story. As the morning gave way to afternoon, Jenny Richards' questions moved on to HIV infection, and the answers weren't any more reassuring. When testing for HIV became available, were all prior and current batches tested for positivity? I don't Is the following a fair way to sum up Armour UK's attitude to risk in the 1980s in relation to AIDS? But unless and until there was conclusive proof that the Armour product could transmit AIDS, Armour's products were safe and risk-free. Yes, as far as, as, far as the evidence um, um, related that. Is there anything you think you or Armour should have done differently with regards to it, your non-heat-treated product? No. Anything you or Armour should have done differently in relation to the heat-treated product? 
very proud of the fact that we, we did do everything uh, in the right way. Were any lessons learnt by Alma from what had happened? Not that I, no, not, no, no specific lessons. But the strangest part of all was the conversation about some of the marketing methods Armour used in the UK. There's been probably 10 or 11 times throughout the course of the day where there's just been bemused laughter in the hearing room. One of those was when Christopher Bishop discussed one of Armour's key brand deals. With Mr Men, where they would include Mr Men's stickers to promote Armour's products. Wow. And Sir Brian chimed in and asked if the Mr. Men stickers were also given to the adults or not, which um, was a bit of a light-hearted moment, (laughs) a bit of laughter. May I just ask, did did adults get the Mr. Men stickers too? Uh, They they would have been um, included as a general general thing. So they would? might have liked the Mr Men badges as well. Thank you. Christopher Bishop gave evidence to the inquiry for a long seven hours. And at the end, he did manage to strike a serious chord. The whole thing, you know, the development of uh, of AIDS and Hep B uh, has been a terrible tragedy. Um, uh, None felt more so than than, than us, or certainly at Armour in the industry. Um, and again, um, can just reiterate our sincere apologies and sympathies um, to all those um, people and their families. Well, well thank you, Mr. Bishop, for uh, your patience in, in what's been a long day for you, I, I know. I think what, what we'll take from your evidence is that you're firm that whatever might be said about it by others... Uh, Armour did its very best to ensure the safety of patients who had their products. So I think we've understood that's your position. Uh, And thank you for coming to display it to us. Okay. Well, thank you, Sir Brian. I hope it's been of some some help anyway. Christopher Bishop said Armour never settled any lawsuits with British survivors. But Jason was left feeling that there could yet be justice... If you were to ask me before today, do I think there'd be criminal charges that that result in some way from this inquiry, I'd say probably not. Probably the main villains are dead. But I feel a bit differently after the evidence today. For that, we'll have to wait. The inquiry is due to report at the end of 2022, or possibly in 2023. But there's a question that's urgent. Could it ever happen again? Find out in part two. Hi, I'm Laura Donnelly. I'm The Telegraph's health editor, which means I look into the latest medical developments and research and investigate what's really going on in our health services. It also means I've spent time uncovering the human stories behind the infected blood scandal. I've written about the cover-ups, revealed leaked documents and the stories of families torn apart by the disaster. But we couldn't do justice to stories like this 
or make podcasts like Bed of Lies without our subscribers. If you'd like to support quality journalism and read as much as you can on politics, sport, business, culture and more, head to telegraph.co.uk slash lies podcast where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. That's telegraph.co.uk slash lies podcast or click on the link in the episode description.